Any of our children who would like to go to Stepping Stones during the sermon time, you're free to go. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke this morning, we come to chapter 3, and we'll be reading the first 20 verses. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, this is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and powerful word. Please give it your full attention. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill be, shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Imagine that you were in some public place and you eavesdropped on a married couple having a very intense conversation. And this is what you heard. The wife saying, I'm tired of you hitting me every time you get drunk and angry. And I know that you spent last weekend with another woman. The husband says, 
you're right, I'm sorry. And the wife says, wait, that's it? That's all you're going to say is I'm sorry? The husband says, yeah, I'm sorry, and you should forgive me. And the wife says, well, are, are you going to get counseling? Are you going to stop getting drunk? Are you going to stop seeing that other woman? The husband says, no, but if you really love me, you'll forgive me. How would you respond to that conversation? You'd be incensed, wouldn't you? How ridiculous that a husband would expect a wife to forgive and not expect any change on the part of his behavior. Let's change the scenario a little bit just to give it a different angle. What if you were to walk into a courtroom and a man were standing before the judge and was asked whether or not to plead guilty to having robbed a bank and killed a bank guard? And so the judge would say, what's your plea? And the man says, guilty. I did it. And I'm sorry. And I hope that you'll forgive me. But you know what? I've got another robbery planned for next weekend. So could you admit, plan for me to get released in time to get that done? You know, how, would, how would you respond to seeing that? It would be a total travesty, not only of justice, but of the concept of forgiveness. We expect other people, when they say they're sorry to us, when they confess they've done something wrong to offend us, we expect them to try to change that behavior. And yet, so often when we go to God, we don't have that same expectation. We say, well, if God is God, then he should just forgive us and not expect any change. I have been sitting in on the Peacemaker class during the adult Sunday school on Sunday mornings. It's been a great class. And one of the steps, when, when, one person, when, when a person's in a conflict in the church and and this person sinned against that person, that person sinned against that person. One part, the, the very first step in the process of trying to bring reconciliation to this broken relationship, as it has been taught in this class, as it's taught in scripture, is to get the log out of your own eye. To address your own sin first before you go and confront somebody else about the way they've sinned against you and offended you. Well, how much more so must you deal with the log in your own eye, the sin in your own life, before you try to go to God to seek reconciliation when God has never sinned against you? God has never offended you. You're the only sinner in that equation. In this passage of Scripture, we are beginning to look at the public ministry of John the Baptist. And we've been told already a couple of times about what the calling and mission of John the Baptist would be as God had given it to him. We saw it back in chapter 1 when the angel of God appeared to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, before John was conceived, before John was born. And this is what the angel told his father his mission would be. Listen to the wording. This is chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he, this child, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, the, he will go before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then after John the Baptist was born, this is his father's testimony to the mission that God had given to his son. It's in chapter 1, verses 76 and 77. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He was sent to prepare the way, to be what we call the forerunner to the Messiah. The Messiah was about to appear, the promised one, the one that sinful mankind has been waiting for and hoping for. The people of God have been resting in the promises of this seed of the woman that would come to crush the head of the serpent, to deliver God's people, to redeem God's people, to restore them to a right relationship with God, and to deliver the full kingdom of God. That's what they've been waiting for for generation upon generation. And John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way. And it's interesting the way in which he was to prepare. This prophecy that Isaiah gives over in chapter 3, we just read a few moments ago, Isaiah, 800 years earlier, had prophesied of the coming of John the Baptist in these words, according to verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Today, if a president or a prime minister or a queen or a king were to come to another country on an official visit, they'll send an advanced team or an advanced person. With somebody of that level, it's always a team. They send them beforehand, before the visit, to prepare the people that are going to be visited for this royal or this presidential arrival. And so they'll go and they'll make sure that all the security is in place where it needs to be. They'll make sure that all the food and lodging is arranged. They'll make sure that all the ceremonies are followed to the, to the nth degree. And so that is really the role that John the Baptist was to serve. He was to be the advance man to the Messiah. God was coming in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver his people and to fulfill all of those promises of the old covenant. What I notice here that really jumped out at me this time that I never noticed before is verse 18 says, John preached the good news to the people. He preached the good news, the gospel. That's what the word gospel means, good news. He preached the good news to the people. I don't know about you, but when I read what John actually preached, and we'll be looking at that in just a moment, I don't tend to think of good news. Matter of fact, it seems like John was sent to give the bad news so that Christ could come to give the good news, but that's actually a false perception of both their ministries, as we're going to see in a moment. John came preaching repentance. He came preaching repentance. And so today's passage is a good time for us to ask the question, what's the connection, what's the relationship between our repentance, which is a turning from our sin to God, what does repentance have to do with the gospel? What does repentance have to do with the gospel? Let's look at the preaching of John the Baptist. Let's go, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, Luke, the writer of this gospel, who by the guidance and, 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 and inspiration of the Holy Spirit has given us literal history, he's showing himself to be a diligent historian here. John is not writing myths or legends or inspirational stories. He is recording real history that happened in real time and real space. 
And he indicates this in this passage by placing John the Baptist's ministry in the context of the rulers in the Roman Empire's setup of, of civil government, the rulers who ruled over the four different areas where the Jewish people lived in the first century. And in the time of John the Baptist, the, the names are listed there of those who ruled over them in a civil government, as well as listing two names for the high priest, the high priest who served in the temple and was the ultimate spiritual leader of the people of Israel. Now, you might wonder why are there two names, because there was only ever one high priest. Well, technically, Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas was his uh, grandfather, and he had, or actually, his fa- it was, he was his father-in-law, or yes, father-in-law, and he was actually deposed by earlier authorities, but the people of Israel still recognized him as being a legitimate high priest. So therefore, Annas, and that's why even at Jesus' trial, Annas and Caiaphas are both consulted during Jesus' trial at the end of his ministry. What this points out to us, if you know anything about these men from Scripture, let alone from history, and from both Scripture and from secular history, we know that all of these men were corrupt. They were all bad leaders. And it speaks to the darkness of the time that John the Baptist carried out his ministry. We live in a dark time because of bad leaders. But that's the place, that's the kind of darkness into which the light of God's word always shines. And that's what happens here. In verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's the wording that the Old Testament always used when a new prophet comes on the scene. And the word of God came to the prophet. Who is the last Old Testament prophet, by the way? It's not Malachi. It's John. John is the last prophet of the Old Covenant. He was the last one to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. All the Old Testament prophets did that. All the Old Testament prophets promised one who would come to bring redemption. John the Baptist really, in in many ways, really in all ways, still operated under the old covenant shadows because Christ had not quite yet come to bring the light of the new covenant. John's ministry took the place in the context of the wilderness, and I think that's significant. In Scripture, the wilderness was a symbol of God's separation from those who were in rebellion against him. Remember that the Israelites, when they refused by faith to enter into the promised land by the power of God, they were disciplined by God and sent back into the wilderness to wander for 40 years for all generation. And so from that point on throughout scripture, the wilderness becomes a symbol of spiritual dryness, of judgment, of separation from God, of of death and rebellion. And so that's the message that John is sent to address, that God's people are living in this wilderness. And so he comes calling them to repentance. And it has an added element to it. Not only did he come preaching about repentance, but in verse 3 says he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. None of the Old Testament prophets accompanied their preaching with a baptism. Baptism was something new as far as God's word reveals. Now, we don't know that secular history tells us 
that, or actually Jewish history tells us that there was a proselyte baptism that the Jews added to Old Testament teaching. It's not, you don't find any baptisms in the Old Testament per se, but there was something that, that the Jews seem to have added uh, later in history called proselyte baptism, where if a, if a Gentile, a pagan, somebody outside of Israel came to believe in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and wanted to come and worship the true God and be part of God's people, they would, of course, if they were, if they were male, they'd have to be circumcised. They would have to agree to fulfill all of the moral law and the ceremonial laws and to, to fully keep all the laws of God. But they also would, would be, receive this proselyte baptism, which spoke to the fact that Gentiles were particularly dirty and outside the kingdom and need a special cleansing to become part of the people of God. Now, we don't know if, if, if that's in any way a precursor to, to John's baptism. John's baptism is revealed by God, and that one wasn't uh, revealed by God. So the point is that this baptism of John was not only for Gentiles. It was for everyone who came to John and, and almost all, if not all, of the people who came flocking to John to hear his preaching were Jews. And so you can imagine how offensive the fact would be to many of these Jews that they would have to be baptized and treated like Gentiles in order to come into the kingdom of God. But John's message was all sinners must be cleansed by grace in order to be part of the kingdom of God. And so he came preaching a baptism of repentance. Well, what is the content of his preaching? Let's talk about this repentance that John preached. The first element of it is warning. Warning to flee from wrath. Look at verse 7. The first words quoted from John are these. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Obviously, John the Baptist was not a candidate for a pulpit in a seeker-sensitive church. That's how he addressed the people. You brood of vipers, you, you household of snakes. And what he's addressing there is that many of the people who flocked to him, he was the latest fad. He was, he was you know, he was the, the in thing among the Jewish people. Go out and hear John the Baptist. What a dynamic preacher. Well, man, he's really making a difference out there. You've got to go out and hear this guy. You're not going to believe this guy. And so they come out, but John recognized by the leading of the Spirit that many of these people were not sincere, that they wanted the religious experience, but they didn't really want conversion, repentance, and faith in the Messiah. We know from other gospel writers that among the crowds that flocked to John the Baptist were many Pharisees and Sadducees who were the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And they are the ones who come under the harshest condemnation in the ministry of John the Baptist and later of Jesus. Matthew says that John's harsh words here, calling them a brood of vipers, actually were particularly directed at these religious leaders. And that's why John goes on to say, don't think that being Abraham's children, being genetically, physically related to Abraham in any way makes you a special case in the eyes of God, that you don't need what I'm talking about. Jesus would later say when, when the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, claimed before him that they didn't need what he was talking about because they were Abraham's children, he said, no, you're not Abraham's children. You are of your father, the devil. 
That's what he said to the religious leaders because they would not recognize their need of what John preached and what Jesus would later preach. Paul would make it clear in Galatians 3 that it is of those who are of faith in Jesus Christ who are sons of Abraham. You become part of God's family by faith, not by physical lineage or DNA or genetics. John said that baptism was for those who were fleeing the wrath to come. That was central to his message, that wrath is coming. He describes that wrath in vivid imagery in verse 9. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In verse 17, he gives another picture of the coming wrath. It says, his, the Messiah's winnowing fork, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, if you're not familiar with the background of what, what the imagery of what he's talking about there, it's from farming in the first century. A farmer, if he harvested the wheat out of his field, he'd bring it all in and he'd lay it out on what's called the threshing floor. And then they would bring in oxen or some other heavy animal to tread out the, the wheat, to tread out the grain. And by stomping around on the wheat, eventually it would separate the grain from the husks around it. And so once the oxen were done then you'd have this pile of a mixture of grain as well as useless, worthless husks. And so what the farmer would do is he'd put his fork, his winnowing fork, into the pile, throw it up in the air, and the husks, which were light, would, the wind would blow it to the side, and the heavier grain would fall straight down. And so then you'd end up with a pile of grain only, and then you'd take that grain and put it in the barn because of its value. But the husks were worthless. And so the pile that blew over to the side, they would eventually just burn it. And so what John is alluding to there is the same thing that Jesus Christ would later talk about when he one day would sit on the throne of judgment, and he will one day sit on the throne of judgment. All mankind will stand before him, and he said he will separate all people, the sheep, those who are saved by grace and show that by their life, will be taken into eternal blessing in the presence of God. The goats, those who reject him and rebel against the authority of God, will be cast into eternal punishment. That's the separation that John is talking about. It's the same separation that Jesus later talked about. The wrath of God against sin and unrepentant sinners is coming. It's essential and central to the message of John the Baptist. He says, the axe is at the root of the tree. And the imagery there is the, the uh, logger, the uh, lumberjack. He's got his axe. He's ready to cut the tree down. And he's, you know, he kind of taps the, 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 the base of the tree, ready to swing his first swing and knock it down. Or he says the winnowing fork is in his hand. And so he's talking about imminent judgment. And we have to stop and think about this because John's preaching t- over 2,000 years ago. And he speaks as though this great day of judgment, this separation is about to happen. And the way to understand this is to understand that John was an Old Testament prophet. And he spoke about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the promised one. He spoke about his coming in the same way that Old Testament prophets tended to talk about it, as though both coming for salvation and coming for judgment were one great event. You often see that in the Old Testament prophets. That he'll talk about 
God sending the Messiah to save and deliver his people and at the same time bring judgment upon his enemies. And they would talk about it as though it's one event. But the way it plays out in history is that they're actually at least 2,000 years apart. We call that, I had a good theology professor in, in seminary uh, taught us what that, how to understand that in terms of, they called it prophetic perspective, the perspective of a prophet. And the best illustration I ever heard of that was, uh, you know, when we lived in, my wife and I lived in Kansas City, we had a church camp in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and that's a long drive. It's not only a very long drive from Kansas City to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, it is the most boring drive on the face of the planet. I'm sorry if you're from Kansas, if you love Kansas, but it is, this, I mean, I used to say you could take a picture and tape it to your window and you'd never know the difference because the scenery doesn't change all the way to Colorado. Well, we, I remember the first time we drove out there, I thought, well, it's going to be great though. You know, stick with it. When we get to Colorado, we're going to see the Rocky Mountains. They're going to be majestic. They're going to blow us away. Just hold on till we get to Colorado because those Rocky Mountains are going to be great. And then I found out that Eastern Colorado is the same thing as Kansas, you know, just more of the same. But you eventually get to the point where you start to see this little band of mountains. And as you get closer, it really looks like it's just one long line of tall mountains. It looks like one range, one line of tall mountains. But as you get up next to it, you almost have to get up in it almost to realize that there are a lot of shorter mountains and then medium-sized mountains and then taller mountains and there's a long distance between them. Many, many, many miles between them. And that's what they call prophetic perspective. The Old Testament prophets are looking to God's future acts of redemption. And it looks like to them that salvation and redemption and judgment all happens at the same time. But as you come to experience them, you realize that they're actually thousands of years apart. And so that's what John sees. As a matter of fact, you know later that this happened with John because didn't remember later John sent some of his disciples over to Jesus after Jesus' ministry had been going on for a while. And he says... Jesus, are you the one that is going to be sent, or should we wait for somebody else? What's going on there? He's saying, wait, I preached about judgment. <laughs> I preached about threshing floors and winnowing and separation. Where is it? I don't see it in what you're doing, Jesus, because I don't think John fully understood exactly how this was going to play out over time. But judgment is coming. The wrath is coming. And you will not repent unless you acknowledge that that is true. You will not repent unless you acknowledge that judgment is coming, that the wrath of God will be poured out upon sin and sinners who refuse to repent. That was the center of John's message, and believe it or not, that was the center of Jesus' message as well. Nobody in Scripture spoke more about God's wrath judgment, and hell than the Lord Jesus Christ. Our culture has a hard time believing that, but all you have to do is read the Gospels. Contemporary preaching has de-emphasized the reality of God's wrath and his judgment against unrepentant sinners. But there is no need to repent if you don't believe that God is angry with you for your sin and holy and therefore must punish your sin. And so the warning was the center of John's message. Well, how do we respond to the warning? What's our necessary response to that warning? Verse 8, John tells us, 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, repentance is not just confessing sin verbally. Repentance is turning from your sin to God. And repentance isn't real if there's no change in your thoughts or your words or your actions. That's what repentance is. It's an internal change that produces different words, different thoughts, and different actions. It's turning from sin to God. Paul talked about the difference between worldly sorrow over sin, and there is a worldly sorrow over sin. I mean, we all have a, guilt, we all have a conscience. Some, of it's, some people's consciences are more hardened than others, but everybody has a conscience. And so everybody feels guilty when they do something that's wrong. And that's, you could talk about that as being grief over your sin or being sorry for your sin. You can be sorry when you're caught because you're going to have to deal with the consequences of sinning. Or you can just be sorry that your sin has caused bad consequences. I know many people who have destroyed their marriages and they spend the rest of their life grieving over the consequences of their sin, but that's not repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin to God to do his will. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Well, we see this kind of godly grief on the part of some in the crowds that flock to John the Baptist because he three times he repeats the same phrase. Did you catch that? Three times he quotes the people in the crowds who had heard this preaching, these warnings from John the Baptist, Three times they say, what then shall we do? You see, that's a question that a repentant heart asks. You've warned me of the judgment to come. You've shown me my sin. What then should I do? Well, to the crowd in general, he basically tells them, go and love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law summarized in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so he says, go love your neighbor. If you've got Extra, extra food, give it to somebody who, who needs food. If you've got an extra tunic, and by tunic in the original language, what that means is the shorter shirt that they would wear under their longer robe. If you have two of those shirts, give one to somebody who doesn't have one. That's what repentance looks like. You haven't loved your neighbor, now go and love your neighbor. To a particular group of people in the crowd, the tax collectors, he says, stop cheating people. Tax collectors were those Jewish people who paid the Roman government a, privilege, a, a amount of money so they'd have the privilege of collecting taxes from other Jews. You can imagine how other Jews felt about Jews who became tax collectors. And what made it much worse is that these tax collectors were notorious for charging much more than what the Roman government required them to charge so that they could make a pretty handsome living off of it. They gouged people. And that's why people hated tax collectors. And that's why the Jewish people categorized tax collectors with every other kind of sinner. You know, tax collectors and sinners. That was kind of, the, that's the way you talked about all the bad people. And then, of course, again, just to, to point out, you know, tax collectors, there were two great examples of repentant tax collectors in the Gospels. Matthew himself, the Gospel writer, was a tax collector who repented and followed Christ. He turned from his sin and turned towards God. And then Zacchaeus turned from his sin and turned towards Christ. And then to the third, third group of people in the crowds were the soldiers. And he says to the soldiers, stop extorting people by threatening and falsely accusing them. Now, again, these were undoubtedly Jewish soldiers. So they were, 
Soldiers who served the local governments, not, they weren't Roman soldiers from outside the country of, of Israel. But these soldiers had a terrible reputation for extorting people, for, you know, extorting money from the people that they were supposed to be there to protect. And so they would, and it's interesting, the word extort here in English, in the, in the original language, it means to shake violently. <laughs> they were literally shaking people down to get money, and they were doing so by threatening to, to falsely accuse them, and who would believe a, 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 an ordinary citizen over a soldier, or by just threatening them, physically threatening them. And so they said, what, should we, what then should we do? And John says to them, Stop extorting money and be content with the pay that you've received. Again, you notice in all three cases, he just says, okay, from this point on, do the will of God. Turn from your old way of life and start to do what God would have you do. Love your neighbor. Stop cheating people. Stop threatening people. Be content with your pay. And I think there's an important point about repentance in that. In that when, when you come under conviction of sin and come under the fear of God's wrath against your sin, that God doesn't expect you to go out and do some heroic act of goodness to undo or erase what you've done wrong in the past. He expects you to turn from sin and do what is right. That's repentance. There's a great... Good news in that, isn't there? John's preaching good news. He's not saying you have to go out and and do all kinds of of heroic sacrificial acts for three years and then maybe you can be back at ground zero and then God can begin to work in your life. He's saying, no, just start today. Turn from sin and do what is right. We couldn't do that except for another gift of God's grace. And this is the last point that John makes in his preaching We must turn from sin to God, but we don't have the power to do that. Where does that power come from? Where does the power come from to respond in obedience? You know, it's interesting, before I get to that, that John's ministry became so popular. He was such a fad as the new preacher in the territories and everybody was flocking to him and he he was developing this great movement that people began to say, maybe he's the Messiah. And it's natural, you can understand why they might think that. But John, at that point, does what every good preacher should do. and say, stop looking at me. It's not about me. I'm here to prepare the way for the guy who's about to come. Look to him. He's the Messiah. He's the answer. He can meet your need. He says, I, you know, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap on his sandal. And to get the full weight of what he's saying there is to understand that in a given household, when, when a guest came to visit your house and they had their dirty feet and their dirty sandals and they walked in, it was the job of the lowest servant. And it was the lowest job of the lowest servant to go and unstrap the sandals off the dirty feet of the visitor. And John's saying, I'm not worthy to do that in the presence of this Messiah who's about to appear. He is so far mightier than I am. Or as the Apostle John quotes him, he must increase and I must decrease. But let's get back to then to that power to turn from sin. The key to repentance, he says, when he comes, when this mighty one comes, the Messiah, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And immediately our minds go, you know, go fast forward to the day of Pentecost when the church was born, so to speak, in its new covenant form. And the Holy Spirit came upon the church in tongues of fire. And fire is an image not only of judgment for the unrepentant, but for the repentant, the promise of the fire of the Holy Spirit is that he will refine you, that he will separate the gold from the impurities in your life. He will sanctify you. You see, the call to repentance includes the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit to respond in obedience. Jesus must come first to save, to redeem, to atone, to reconcile God and man. And that was the purpose of his first coming. And he was about to appear on the scene, as we'll see next week, in order to accomplish that great purpose. He would provide the means of forgiveness because he alone would deal with the wrath of God against our sins. Because he alone, being fully God and fully man, lived a perfect human life. He's the only human being who never did anything wrong and did not deserve God's wrath for any thought, word, and deed. And yet he became the perfect Passover lamb. And when, it, when John says you have to flee the wrath of God, do you know where you flee to? The cross. Because the cross is where the wrath of God was fully spent upon the sins of God's people. Every last sin was paid for. God's anger and wrath, his holy wrath against our sin was paid for at the cross. So we flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to the cross where it was accomplished, where it was paid for, where Christ died in our place. He takes away the guilt of all our past sins. That's why, when, that's why we, when we talk about repentance, we don't have to undo anything that we've done before. We don't have to make up for what we've done wrong in the past. We don't have to earn our way back into God's good graces because Christ did that for us at the cross. Repentance means turning in this moment from your sin to God and to do righteousness. No repentance can make atonement for your sin. No repentance can justify you in God's sight. Only the work of Christ on the cross can do that. But if you believe that he died for your sins and you trust in him as your redeemer, then his promise is, I will give you my Holy Spirit to refine you like fire, to change you from within, to give you the ability to walk in repentance. And that is good news. To those of us who believe in him, he promises his Holy Spirit. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is a repentant faith. It's a characteristic of saving faith. Saving faith is a gift according to scripture. And when he gives you the gift of saving faith, a characteristic of that saving faith is that it repents from sin. Not perfectly, because our faith is not perfect. But that's a characteristic. So if it's real and you have it, then repentance will characterize your life to one degree or another. And again, repentance is not immediate. It's a lifetime of turning from sin to God. Repentance is an expression of real faith. I remember when I was, in the first few years of my ministry, I was doing prison ministry. And in our Bible study, our weekly Bible study, 
this guy started coming, and he scared the living daylights out of me because he looked like he was from some from very uh, nasty biker gang. He, he was huge. He was muscular. He was tall. He had a big, bushy beard. He had long, bushy hair. He was missing his front teeth. He had tattoos all over his body. I know that everybody has tattoos now, but back then it meant you were a really bad dude. And he... You know, he came to the Bible study, and he didn't know anything about the Bible, didn't know anything about Jesus, but he just sensed he needed something. And so he was there. And as we taught the scriptures, he, he grew. I mean, we watched him just, he began to understand. He understood the gospel. And he got to the point where he said to us, you know, I really want to believe this. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want to follow Jesus. I want to have eternal life. I want all the things that you're talking about. But I don't want to be one of those jailhouse religion guys. And we had talked to him enough to know what he meant by that. Did you ever hear of foxhole religion? Foxhole religion is what happens in, the, in war when you're in the foxhole and you're about to die. And you say, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll serve you. I'll believe in you. And then once you get out of the foxhole, once you get out of the war, once you get back home, your life goes back to the way it used to be. That's foxhole religion. Well, in the prison, they talk about jailhouse religion. It's the same thing. When you're in jail, when your life is difficult and hard, yeah, then you have a need. Then you, then you say, oh, yeah, I want, to be, I want to follow Jesus. I want all this. But then you get back out on the street, and you get back to your old neighborhood, and you get back among your old friends, and your life goes back to the way it was. And he, he kept saying to us, I want to believe, but I don't want to do that. I've watched guys do that over and over. They'll, they'll say they get saved. They go out of the jail. They come back in two months, and they're just the same as they were. I don't want to be that guy. And we just tried week after week after week to explain to Paul that you need to trust Jesus to give you his Holy Spirit. That if you believe that he'll die for your sins and you commit your life to following him, he will enable you to change your life. He will not abandon you. He will complete the work that he begins in you. You can trust him. You don't need to trust yourself because you can't trust yourself. I don't know if Paul ever came around to understand that and embrace that. I had to leave that ministry before I ever saw how it turned out. I pray that Paul is this day walking in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. What then shall we do? That should be a question that you start every day with. What then shall I do? Jesus Christ has taken away the wrath of God against my sin. I've got a clean slate. I can forget, I can, I've confessed and I can forget the sins of yesterday. Everything's brand new today. The faithfulness of God is new every morning. And I've got an opportunity to serve him. What then shall I do? You see, because the Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. We tend to think of faith and repentance as one-time things. You know, yeah, I put my faith in Christ and I repented from my sin. But it's a lifestyle. You are to live in repentance day in and day out. And I think that's the greatest danger for anybody who's been a Christian for very long is you get to a certain point where you kind of plateau and say, you know, I've repented almost enough. You know, I'm pretty comfortable with a level of repentance in my life. I think I'll just kind of cruise into eternal life from this point on. But you are all so far from the image of Jesus Christ. You have a long way to go before you reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The good news is that Christ will save you and give you his Holy Spirit so that you can become like him. And that is really good news. I mean, this could be a really dire and dour message about God's wrath and judgment and hell, but I want to end on a note of joy because repentance is the path to joy. There is no joy living in sin. There's only darkness and emptiness and death. 
Joy comes through serving the Lord. Joy comes through obedience. Joy comes through being like Jesus Christ. And that's the promise of Christ. I will give you my spirit that you might walk in my ways. So what does repentance look like as a lifestyle? Quickly, it means obviously knowing God's word. Anybody who's walked with the Lord very long knows that you cannot read this book enough to fully understand how much it applies to your life. This is the light of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Holy Spirit sheds the light on the depth of your sin. The more you study it, the more you see who you are and who you must become by the grace of God. You've got to know the Word of God. We keep coming back to that, don't we? You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to study it. You've got to know it. You've got to understand it so that you can apply it to your life. That's how the Holy Spirit's going to change you. Secondly, you've got to be a person of prayer. Because prayer is the expression of your faith that says, Lord, I trust you to do this in me. Lord, I can't do this on my own. Lord, I am incapable of repenting. Lord, I need you to give me your Holy Spirit so that my life can change from the inside out. Prayer is essential to repentance. Thirdly, you've got to step out in faith. Just, you know, you've got a clean slate from yesterday. It's all gone. Paid for at the cross. Step out in faith, even though you failed thousands of times before. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both the will and the work, according to his good pleasure. Act in faith, trusting that the Lord will provide. And when you fall, and you will fall, the grace of God, the blood of the cross, will be there to cover your sin. And in that confidence, you can pick up right away and start again. And then finally, seek accountability. Nobody lives a lifestyle of repentance as a lone ranger, as a solitary person. Repentance is only best lived out in the context of a church family, in a small group, in a, in a congregation, in a, an accountability group. Many different forms of us holding each other accountable. We are meant to repent together. It means being open with one another about our struggles. And asking one another to bring the word of God to light on our situation. And it, holding us accountable to what repentance looks like in our lives. The good news that John the Baptist preached is that Christ has paid for our sin. The wrath is taken away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is given to you to give you the joy of life and obedience to the will of God. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for not leaving us in our wilderness state of being separated from you. Thank you for shining the light of your word and particularly the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives. Thank you for, by the power of your Holy Spirit, opening our eyes and changing our hearts, enabling us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And Lord, now we want to recommit ourselves to this lifestyle of repentance that we might be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ because that is what we long for. That is our greatest joy. And Lord, we long to draw near to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.